Welcome to the 180 Ministry Podcast. Please check us out at the1-80.org. So we are in Luke chapter 15, and the context of that chapter is... um, We're going to be covering verses 11 onward, but the context starts off from verses 1 and 2. And so Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says there, Then drew near unto him all the publicans, some of your Bibles may have tax collectors, and sinners for to hear him. And another group was there. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives who? sinners and eats with them, right? So this was, of course, correct. Jesus was receiving sinners and eating with them. But the powerful thing here is we find two major groups, the publicans and sinners, and then we find the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the reason that this context is so important is because as we touch on the story of the prodigal son, we're going to realize that the beginning of Luke sets the stage For the two major individuals, there are three major individuals in the story of the prodigal son. Can anyone guess who some of those individuals are? The father, right? That's one. The older son and the younger son, right? And so as we look at this, as we look at the context, we're going to realize who the older son is and who the younger son is. The older son, and we're going to break down these symbols and then go into the story. The older son in the parable is actually the one who stays at home is a symbol in context, is a symbol of none other than the scribes and the Pharisees, all right? The younger son who goes away from his father and then comes back to the disdain of the older son. Who do you think that is? The sinners, the publicans and sinners, the tax collectors, people who may have claimed to be a part of Israel, yet they were working for the Romans. And so they were hated by their own people, right? But they, what was happening to them as Jesus was speaking, were they attracted to him? Yes, they were attracted to the son of God. And it reminds me of that statement and inspiration that tells us Jesus is attractive. Jesus is attractive, friends. As we look at the Son of God, as he truly is, we will be drawn to him. And as we are drawn to him, also our characters are conformed to his character so that people will then be drawn to us. That's what we want. We want people to be drawn to Christ. So older son, Pharisees and scribes, in context. Younger son, publicans and sinners. Who do you think the father is in the story? God the father, right? So God the father is the one being touched on in the story. Now as we go through the story, we're going to see some things here and we're going to break them down. But with that, we see just before the story of the prodigal son, the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin. Both of them are rescued, one by the shepherd and the other by the woman who searches through the house 
and finds her coin, and she rejoices. In both cases, there is rejoicing over the finding of that which was lost. But then now we go to verse 11, and it says there, And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods or the estate that falls to me. And he divided unto him his living. Now, the reason that this is so amazing is because before we go into this, Christ Object Lessons, page 198, actually mentions to us, in the parable of the prodigal son is presented the Lord's dealings with those who have once known the Father's love, but who have allowed the tempter to lead them captive at his will. So this is the whole purpose of Jesus relating the story of the prodigal son. It's to show a story of those who once knew God's love, but failed to recognize it, as we're going to see. They fell away, and then they came back. And what must be the response of those who have never left? Because, friends, we're going to find a hidden group in this story that we must be. So the story of one who falls away, the story of one who remains, but in the attitude of the one who remains, we're going to learn what we should not be. All right? So, verse 11, it says, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, it's interesting. Does anyone know when the father gives his estate to his children? Right, that's right. So basically, in the son asking the father for the estate, what is he saying? I can't wait till you die, right? So this is really, really, in a sense, really messed up. But this is what's happening in the story. The son wants the estate even before his father passes. Then it says in verse 13, and not many days after, so he had plans. What was the plan? Verse 13, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with wild living. Now, as we look at this, before the son leaves into this far country, where was he? He was at home. I want you guys to think about this. It doesn't necessarily directly say it in the story. But what do you think home represents in the story? Safety, all right? Safety for sure. Anything else? Remember, this story is composed of two groups. Composed of, yeah, the scribes and the Pharisees, and it's composed of publicans and sinners. Or those who have left, but they're trying to come back home. What do you think home would be if it's the father's house? Okay, somebody says heaven. I heard, I think I heard it up front. The church, that's actually what the father's house represents. Because you remember, we're not yet in glory, even though we're traveling there, for sure. But the home is on earth. It's the church of the living God, composed of people and we're going to see what those people should be, but they have failed to be, 
right? So the church is represented as the father's house. But you remember, the younger son, where does he go? He goes in, verse 13, to a far country. So if the house of the father is the church, where do you think is the far country? Outside of the church. And we have a name for that in the Bible. It's called the world. So he leaves the church, goes into the world to live the way that he wants, which reveals to us why he left the church, right? He left the church because he hated its rules. He hated what seemed to be its restrictions. And so he left. He says, I'm going to go out to the world and I'm going to live a riotous or a wild life. Now, what is that wild life? We end up finding out in verse 30 when he comes back and the elder brother's angry because of the feast that's being had for him. Verse 30 tells us the, the older brother speaking to the father concerning the younger brother. He defines what riotous living was like. He says, but as soon as this, your son, notice he doesn't call him his brother. As soon as this, your son was come, which has devoured your living with what? With harlots. You have killed for him the fatted calf. So we're seeing that the son was living a wild life, went out to the world, a symbol of those who many times, as a result of seeing the many so-called restrictions of the church and rules of the church, they have become dissatisfied with it, maybe dissatisfied with how it was portrayed to them. Sometimes, you know, you can have the right restrictions, the right rules, but it depends on who, com who communicates those rules, right? Sometimes as people, as church members, as church folk communicate the truths of God, it's in such a way that it actually can push people away. Friends, this is one of the things that we have to be careful about. When we came to the truth, did God give it to us all at once? No, friends. He gave it to us piece by piece. And he dealt with us as he deals with newborn children. Getting up, walking, and tripping. Getting up, walking, and tripping again and again. Learning the process of faithfulness. And that's how God is calling us to work with others. To call them to the truths of his word, but in tenderness, in kindness. And sometimes it may require that we say nothing at certain moments. We must be, as Jesus says, wise serpents and doves. Sometimes God wants us to say, and sometimes God wants us to live. So it continues, verse 14, and when he had spent all. Now, this is interesting. One of the first points that I want us to see as we go to verse 14 is this major point. The father allowed the son to go, and there's an important lesson in this. There are times, because we know ultimately he came back, but why didn't the father prohibit him from going? It says there are times when God gives us what we ask for, knowing full well that as we squander the gifts that he gives us, we will be led back to him. Because you see, there are times when we are at our lowest point, and that will be our next point. 
But this is the major thing. Sometimes God asks us for something or we ask God for something and we ask for it so much that God says, all right, is that what you would like? And he allows us to have it for a season. And as we have it and we squander it, we then realize, whoa, this was never part of God's idea. But because I was so persistent, God allowed me to have it so that in the very end, even though it may have led me astray, it ultimately led me right back to him. And so, friends, God is a gentleman. That's one of the things that the Bible shows us. So in verse 14, look at what happens. The younger son uses everything he has that he received from the father. The father gave it to him, knowing full well he's going to misuse it. But he gave it to him, and then in verse 14, it says, and when he had spent all, that's all of what? All of his inheritance, right? So everything's gone. Now look at this. This is so funny, but it's so solemn though. Right when he spends everything, what happens in the land? Oh, you notice the, the famine didn't come when he had a lot, right? The famine comes when he lost everything. That is wild because sometimes we see that in our own lives. Sometimes a bad situation happens. We don't have the resources to take care of ourselves. And then what happens next? It gets worse. It gets worse. And so in this story, we find it. It says, he spent all, there arose a famine in that land, and he began to be in want. In other words, he was lacking. Verse 15 states, and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he would fain or desire to fill his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. So he couldn't even eat the food of pigs. He desired it, but it wasn't even being given to him. Now, the reason that this is so interesting is because where is the father at this moment? Right, he's at home, right? So he's at home. But I want you to notice something. And this blew my mind when I was really looking at it. It says in verse 17, and when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's what we call repentance, right? And am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. The interesting thing about that section that we just read is that in the darkest moment, he realized that he misunderstood his father. Do you see that? In the darkest moment, he thought about the fact that the father's servants had so much bread that the Bible says they had enough to spare. The reason that that's so interesting is because 
In his darkest moment, he's remembering the father's abundance. But I want you to get this. Who is the group that had enough bread to spare? The servants. And that reveals not just the father's abundance, but the father's goodness. That the father was so good that even those who served him, not just his children, but even those who served him had enough bread to spare. That means in thinking about God's goodness, verse 18 happens. He said, I will go back to my father in a state of repentance and ask him to receive me again. That is exactly what the Bible teaches. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us, this is one of my favorite texts. You guys have heard me say it many times, that it is the wrath of God that leads us to repentance. Is that what the Bible tells us? That's right. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. As we think of God's goodness towards us, even in light of our mess, it is that that says to us, that calls us to think and realize, whoa, and maybe, maybe my father wasn't that bad. It came to a point where he finally realized there was no reason for him to leave. That's what's really interesting. And one of the things that I want to say in connection with this is that, friends, there are times when people leave the church for legitimate reasons. But when it comes strictly to the principles of God's word and God's character, this is not a legitimate reason. Does that make sense? There are times when there is abuse from the very members that claim to compose the church. And those are legitimate reasons why people leave God's movement. And it's understandable. And for that, we cannot fault people. We must call them back in love. We must seek to emulate that which they did not see in the very place that they thought they should see it. And we must be kind in seeking to win people back to Christ or win them back to the very church itself while exemplifying the love of Jesus. But when it comes strictly to the thing that we're talking about here, it's as a matter of God's, it's a matter of God's character we're talking about. And seeing God's restrictions, seeing God's character and misunderstanding it, this is the reason why this young man left. And friends, as he began to think about it, at his lowest point, he realized, wait, I misunderstood what my father's really like. My father is actually really good, and I had it good. Hence, our second point is this. God knows that some will have to reach rock bottom before they will ever look up. Some will have to leave what is good to finally realize they had it good. Does that make sense? Some will have to leave, go out into the world, experience whatever they go through, get to a point where it gets to complete darkness, and then realize, whoa, at one point I stood in the light, and God was really good to me. 
And that is what then leads them back. Hence, I want to propose to you that while the father was at home, he was in the world with his son. Does that make sense? Because it was the thought of his goodness. And who do you think impresses us with the thought that God is good? Yeah. So God was with him right in that pig pen, right there where he was working with the pigs. God was there. He was not only at home. He was right there in the world, drawing his son back to him. And when he drew him back and he saw his character, it's powerful what the Bible says. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. So he's being drawn now by divine grace. But when he was yet a great way off, imagine this in your mind, friends, with your sanctified imagination. Uh, the younger son is coming back. He's probably in rags. Everything is gone that he once had. He's probably, he probably looks totally ragged at this moment. And as he's approaching, the father had such love for his son. Can, have you ever had that moment where, where maybe you're far away from a person that you're looking for and you're, you're trying to think, man, where is this individual? And the individual may have passed you and you look back and you see the individual and you recognize their mannerisms from afar off. But you know, hey, that's the person I'm looking for. Friends, this is what probably happened at this moment. This guy is far off, but yet to his father. The father recognizes him as much as the day when he left. And so it says here, when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. That is so beautiful because notice, as he's coming back home, which we said home represents church, as he's coming back, notice the father doesn't meet him at the door and said, man, you haven't been here in a long time. He doesn't meet him at the door and say, hey, there's some stuff and steps you got to take in order for you to be, to be loved again. You have to earn yourself into this. Rather, what do we see here? We see that the father meets him with compassion and kissed him. Kiss, for God to kiss someone in the scriptures, and notice this is God the father doing this. What Jesus is painting here before us is not that God sent his son into the world, therefore he loves us. No, it's that Christ came into the world to reveal how the Father has always felt about us. That is the main purpose of the Gospels. It's not to, to make God interested in you, but it's to show that God has always been interested. He's always loved you. He's always loved me. And so this word kiss in the Bible at times is used as a symbol of reconciliation. In other words, God is saying, hey, you and I are one again. You may have left, but you came back. And I'm not going to bring up the reasons why you left. I'm not going to bring up your past. I'm not going to bring up your faults that you committed while you were out there. No, come back, and I'm glad you're home. Friends, that's the idea that God is saying to each and every one of us that we must have. When others return, 
from being out in the world. It is not our work to condemn. It is our work to bring them back and friends to love them so much and by precept and example emulate what God is calling them to. Amen? All right, so the story goes on. It says, the son said unto him. Now notice this. Notice the kind of love that we're seeing here. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. That's repentance and confession in one verse. Now notice when he does this, in verse 19, it tells us that there was an extra portion that was left out. It says, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now, verse 21, it says, I'm no more worthy to be called your son. And before he can even get to the next part, the father interrupts him. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Why? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. That's powerful, friends, because there's a few things there. One is the father didn't even allow him to get to the point where he could say, hey, let me be one of your servants. He totally cut him off. And said, no, that's not going to happen. You are my son. We are sons and daughters of God. And when we come back to him, he receives us as such. But not only that, in a state of repentance now, what's one of the first things placed upon this younger son? The robe. What do you think that represents? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. As we return to God, we are clothed with the very life of his son. Hence, when God looks at us, he no longer sees our iniquity. He sees his son's righteous life. Not only that, the second part it says, and he put on him a ring and shoes on his feet. In scripture, when a ring is placed on your finger, anyone know what that represents? What's that? Say that one more time. Forgiveness, okay. That could be one of them. Anything else? Ownership. Somebody else? Love. Okay, one more. Royalty. Okay. So you guys all got it right, and it's very close. It actually means, in a sense, ownership slash authority. So now all the authority of sonship has been restored to him. So he's actually seen as what he was before he left his home, fully restored, having the full rights of a son, clothed in Christ's righteousness. And then next, it says, and he put shoes on his feet, and then he said, bring here the, cat, the fatted calf. Now, in Jewish terminology, in the Jewish mindset, a fatted calf represented the sacrifice of the Son of God. It represented to them the Old Testament sacrifices that were given, one of which was a calf. And so think about this. 
What the Bible is really saying to us here is the reason that he can be accepted so easily, be clothed in Christ's righteousness, meaning be clothed in innocence, then receive the authority, the full authority of sonship. The reason he can receive that all so easily is because Jesus died for him. So Jesus went through this painful process that we might receive, be received back to God simply. Knowing that we can come to God and it's not by our efforts that all of a sudden we gain the right to become children of God, friends. It is that we are adopted as we accept the sacrifice that was already given on our behalf. You hear many say today, hey, you know what, Akeem, I know I should come to God, but let me, let me do some good things first, build up my good works, and then I will come to Jehovah. But what the Bible is revealing to us, friends, is that we cannot earn salvation. We must come as we are, and God receives us as we are, and then takes us to where we, want to, where we need to be. Now, summarizing and closing Friends, the last portion of this story, I want to make one more point as we go forward. The very moment we come to God, we receive the very right slash authority that belongs to son, to a son or daughter of God, because we are, we are sons and daughters. Now, the next part of the story shows that his brother, upon hearing the good news and the, the, the rejoicing that his brother is now home and received, was his brother happy? No, his brother was angry. The story actually ends with the brother outside of the house, angry with his father for receiving the younger brother. And you remember, according to the context, who's the younger brother? The sinner. So get this. The older brother's like, I was here all the time. I served you. I did everything that you told me to do. Do you know what's interesting? He served his father, but what we realize here is that he served his father seeking to earn recognition. That was the problem. He was in the church. And you remember who we said, who we said in context is represented by the elder brother? Israel, God's people, and even more specifically, the the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? The Pharisees and the scribes. And the way that they operated was that I will do good works to earn salvation. So they were doing the works of the law, which we should do, but they were doing it all for the wrong reasons, wrong motivation. And so friends, may we remember, even if we have not left the house, even if we may have kept um, let's say, let's think of some other things. Even though we may have an understanding of prophecy, even though we may have understandings of all the reforms in the world, even though we may give tithe and offering, even though we may do all of these things, even if we keep the Ten Commandments, and should we do those things? Yes, but if we do all of those things with the wrong motive, we are just as lost as if someone left the church and went out into the world. We may be a part of the church, but you remember, as one person said, 
It was tithe-giving, health-conscious, all of the reform-practicing people that actually crucified the Son of God. Why? Because their motivations were wrong. This is why we ever have to be careful about what is in our hearts. What is leading us in the actions that we do? A statement and then a story. This is one of the statements that I was looking at here. This is found in Christ's Object Lessons, page 209, paragraph 3. By the elder son were represented the unrepenting Jews of Christ's day, and get this, and also the Pharisees in every age who look with contempt upon those whom they regard as publicans and sinners because they themselves have not gone to great excesses in vice. They are filled with self-righteousness. Christ met these cavillers on their own ground. Like the elder son in the parable, they had enjoyed special privileges from God. They claimed to be sons of God in God's house, but they had the spirit of the hireling, thinking they deserved more. They were working not from love, but from hope of reward. In their eyes, God was an exacting tax, taskmaster. They saw Christ inviting publicans and sinners to receive freely the gift of his grace, the gift which the rabbis hoped to secure only by toil and penance, and they were offended. The prodigal's return, which filled the father's heart with joy, only stirred them with jealousy. Now notice that. They saw God. These Pharisees saw God as a taskmaster, an exacting taskmaster. Now let me ask you something. Were the Pharisees exacting taskmasters? Yes. They were very precise. You know what that tells me? Our picture of God regulates our spirituality. Our picture of God is how we live out our lives. If we view God as exacting, what will we be? Exacting. That's why Jesus came to set it straight. God is not like that. Yes, he has a perfect record of our entire life, sins and righteous acts, but he is not someone who's looking over our shoulder to destroy us when we fail. He's not like that. And the sooner God's people see this, the better we will treat one another and others. This is why this is so vital. Now, I was seeing this in closing. I was seeing a little bit of how God is drawing people who may be out there, they're living their lives, they're, they're living wild living, and they're doing their own thing. I saw that a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, I believe it was Sister Ellen, um, Brother Garrett, myself, and Sister Megan, we went out and we were, we were giving out some of the food at the hotels. We were carrying it and we were dropping it off. Now, there was a, a hotel room that we came to, and as we came to that room, the guy wasn't there. I was like, man, where is this guy? And so I called the number connected with that room, and the guy said to me, hey, man, I'm no longer there. I'm, I'm out in Baltimore. But hey, can you bring, and I was hoping he wouldn't ask me this, but he did. <laughs> he said, but hey, can you bring the food for me? And I was like, in my mind for a split second, I was like, 
Baltimore. But then God was like, no, you have to go. You got to go. This may be the last time you do it because you're serving those at the hotel specifically, but drop this food for him. Help him. And so I said, okay, Lord, I'll go. And so all the way there, so I'm driving, and I'm like, Baltimore, downtown Baltimore, Lord. And this was like, we weren't out there in the day. What was the time? About, yeah, about 7 p.m., right? So I was like, Lord, it's getting dark. And so I was like, man, I was, I was like, okay, 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 Lord, I'm just going to go, though. So we, I go, and we, I get down there, and it's inner city Baltimore, and I was going to park at a certain place to deliver the food to the gentleman, and a U-Haul was there. And the guy in the U-Haul, he came out, and he was waving at me because apparently they were about to do something in that space. And so I was like, I, w- I wind out my glass, and he was like, hey, man, we're, we're about to do something there. And he was like, but are you going to be long? And I was like, no, I'm going to be short. I'm just here to drop off something, and then I'm leaving. And he was like, go ahead, man, do what you have to do. And so I parked, and so he, he thought I was from Instacart. You guys ever heard of Instacart? So basically, you may pick up groceries for someone who orders, and you drop it off. So he thought I was doing that. And so I got out, and he was like, yeah, man, I know you got to make your money, man. And so I was like, no, actually, I'm doing this with the church, and we're just serving others. We're serving the, the um, refugees that are here. And so he was like, oh, okay. So the guy came out. He got the food. I gave it to him. And then as I'm going back to the car, because I, was, I had mentioned that I was part of a church and we were doing this, he says, hey, oh, so you're religious. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I believe in, in the religion of God's word. And he's like, oh, you believe in the Bible. And so he got really excited slash sarcastic slash skeptical. And so this guy, he's talking to me, and he's sort of like half drunk, right? Because he was, he was drinking at that moment, and I was talking to him. So I was like, interesting. So we're talking, and he says to me, he said, so what do you believe about that book? And I said, well, and he says, I know what you believe about that book. And I said, what do I believe? And he said, no, you tell me, you tell me. And I knew where he was going. I said, I believe that men wrote this book. And he's like, aha, exactly. But I didn't stop there. I said, as they were inspired by God. And so he said, I don't know about that, man. There's a lot of people who claim to be inspired by God. Have you, have you met any one of these guys in this book? So how do you know that they really met him, right? How do you know that they were really inspired by him? And friends, at that moment, I had just had a conversation with my best friend a few days earlier, and he said, Akeem, we were talking about my testimony, how he won me to the faith, brought me to Jesus Christ, and um, an amazing event that happened in my life that up until that point in our conversation, I was very skeptical to talk about it. And he said, Akeem, you have to share that aspect of your testimony. You can't keep it back, brother. And so I was like, okay, okay, I'll share it. So I shared it with this guy on the street, and I said to him, he asking me, he said, how do you know? How do you, how do you, you've never met these guys, so how do you know that this is a legitimate book? And so I said to him, brother, I'll tell you, 
I have something even better than meeting those guys in this book. What if I told you that one day, friends, this actually happened to me. I, this was in high school, 10th grade high school, going into the summer. And in high school, I was the class clown, second degree black belt fighting everybody in school, causing my teachers trouble. And my friend Alex, he comes along, best friend to this day, he comes along and he says to me, Akeem, I have become a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And so he tells me about it, and I embrace what he's telling me. But then one day I'm thinking about it. I'm like, Lord, if I make this decision to tell you how narrow-minded I was, I was like, I'll lose my popularity. I won't be able to wear my, my Jordans anymore like I love wearing them. Um, I'll lose the clout that I have in school. And so I'm sitting there on my bed thinking this. But friends, as God usually is, he meets us where we're at. And so as I'm laying on my bed, I'm about to say the words, I will not be anything in life if I accept these truths that I'm learning. And as I say, I will, and I'm about to say, never be anything. Before I could say, never be anything, I am not lying to you, friends. Just as I am speaking to you here today, an audible voice in my room says, I will make you great for my cause. Just like I'm speaking to you here, an actual voice to the point that I got up and I was in complete fear, <laughs> abject terror, because I was like, whoa, what was that? And then I realized upon processing, finally just getting a moment to really think about it, that a divine voice had spoken to me in my room. And friends, as I got up, I was totally convinced. And so I told that to the guy in Baltimore. And as I said it to him, I saw the spirit of prophecy 101. Inspiration tells us that men can go back and forth arguing and debating their faith, but there is one thing that people cannot argue against. Do you know what that is? Your testimony. And so when I told him this, friends, do you know what this guy did? It's like he went from drunk to sober in that one moment, all right? As I'm telling him this, all of a sudden he goes like, whoa. And I was like, sir, it happened. It's like, so what, what do we do about that? And friends, he, <laughs> for a moment, he didn't know what to say. And then as he said something, he said, brother, I can, I can argue with you on a lot of things, but I cannot argue with you on that. And so his brother, his friend, seeing that he's talking now about religious things, his friend's like, hey, man, we have to, we have to unpack the truck. His friend's trying to get him away from the conversation. And so... He goes over, he said, all right, all right, I'm coming, I'm coming. He collects himself, he says, I'm coming. And I said, brother, blessings to you. And then God reminded me, leave him with something. Leave him with something. And so as he's leaving, I said, brother, are you open? And he says, he looks at me and he says, yeah, I'm open, I'm open. And I said, I will leave you with something. Let me leave you with something. And I gave him a, a tract on the end time message. Three angels' messages. It's called The Last Call of Mercy. And so I left it with him. And then as I left and I was going back to Maryland, how, oh, what do you think I was doing in the car? I was praying 
and I was shouting at the top of my lungs, God, you are powerful. I thought I was just going there to drop off a meal. But God was sending me there because in serving others, I was reaching someone who may have been like the younger son. He was out there, but he was searching. And God sent me there for that soul. Friends, my prayer for us today as we close is that we will be willing to serve and be used by God, not to be like the elder son, but friends, yes, to stay in God, the Father's house, while being absent of a spirit that is judgmental to those who are seeking to get to the Father. Is that your prayer? To be like that? To be like Jesus? Then I ask you to stand as we close with a prayer. If that is your desire. Father, you see here today, O oh Lord, that we desire to be like Jesus. One who is ever connected with the Father, never leaves, but at the same time, one who is not like the judgmental Pharisees. One who judges righteously. And Lord, righteousness is a love and truth combined, not just truth. Father, help us to be loving to those who will seek you out, recognizing the flaws in our own lives and how you daily seek to reach us. Help us to serve, that in serving and fulfilling the Great Commission, that we may truly represent our Savior. Thank you for this story, and continue to bless us and keep us in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please look us up online at the1-80.org and at the 180 YouTube channel. Please reach out to us with any questions or prayer requests. Until next time, thanks for listening.